you are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. There's an inescapable reality that every human being on planet Earth has to deal with on a regular basis. It's happening in the ravaged, war-torn streets of Syria. It's happening in the Costco parking lot. It's happening between political enemies across the floor in Parliament. It's happening across the kitchen table when our family sits down. It's conflict. We spend most of our lives trying to avoid it. A fair amount of research goes into finding its source, where does it come from, and how can we resolve it better and deal with the emotions of anger or fear or anxiety that go along with it. But until we understand that behind every conflict, whether it be political or military, whether it be interpersonal or whether it be internal, until we understand that every single conflict that we experience is actually derived from a greater, broader conflict. Until we understand that, we will never be equipped to deal with small conflicts or large conflicts in our lives or on the news. The book of Revelation is a book about revealing things. And we've been going through this series called Seeing Things Clearly. And today we're going to look at this idea of conflict and how does the book of Revelation help us make sense and see our own personal conflicts with new eyes in light of the broader conflict that has been happening since time began. So I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Revelation. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now with copies of the Bible. And if you don't have a Bible with you or don't have one on your phone, just put up your hand. It'll make a lot more sense if you're able to follow along while I'm teaching. So don't be shy. Put up your hand. We want to make sure everyone has a chance uh, to follow along. What we're going to see today is that until we become conscious of this battle, this great battle that is being waged, we will not be able to deal with the small battles of our lives. And it's not just becoming conscious of it, it's also becoming confident that we are actually on the winning side, that victory actually belongs to us. So we're going after consciousness of the battle today, and we're going after confidence that we have the victory. And so before we turn to God's word, let's pray for his spirit to help us and guide us. And so Heavenly Father God, we come to you. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and we come by your spirit who teaches us to pray. We come by your spirit who inspired John to write these things down. And we pray, Lord God, that your spirit would speak so that we could see clearly. And so that we could see your son exalted and lifted up. And that we could see your glory even in the midst of conflict, Lord. So we pray, God, that you would speak right now clearly and powerfully as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can jot this down first off. There's three things that really need to happen if we're going to be able to deal with conflict in our lives. And it begins with, with seeing the invisible battle. 
We have to be able to see the invisible battle. And the battle is invisible. And so how do you see something that is invisible? Well, enter the book of Revelation. A revelation is intended to reveal that which is invisible. And it describes things that we, we wouldn't normally be able to describe. And revelation speaks in symbolism. It speaks symbolically to describe the indescribable, to explain the, the unexplainable. Revelation fits in a, a category known as apocalyptic literature. It, it, it's, a, it's a different form of writing from other books of the Bible. Just like we would read the, the New York Times different from how we would read a mystery novel, different from how we would read a, a tweet on our child's social media. There's, there's a certain genre that you expect. There's certain ways of writing based on the style of literature you're trying to write. So apocalyptic literature is a unique genre, a unique style of writing. But we're at a disadvantage now because no one is writing apocalyptic literature anymore. The Bible has letters, and we, still, we know what a letter looks like. And the Bible has uh, histories, and we, we, people are still writing history. But no one's writing apocalyptic letters anymore. No one's writing apocalyptic stories anymore. And so we, we need to be very careful in the way that we read Revelation because it's a, it comes to us in a, a form, in a genre that we're simply not uh, familiar with. It speaks in symbols. Take a look at Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1. It says, I saw a great sign, I'm sorry, and a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. This is describing the invisible battle. And there's three uh, individuals who are involved in this, in this battle, in this conflict. It's this, and there are just three simple diagrams here for you. Revelation 12 describes a woman, describes a dragon, and describes a child. And in order to understand Revelation 12, we need to understand what the author here means. When he, who, is, who is the woman? Who is he talking about when he describes the woman? Who is this dragon? And who is the child? In, in order to understand the battle, in order to see the battle, we need to see who is fighting. The vision begins with uh, the woman. Uh, she's beautifully clothed. She's clothed with the sun, it says. The moon is under her feet, and on her head is this beautiful crown with 12 stars. The woman is a picture of the people of God. And the picture is even more focused, actually, not just, not just the people of God generally, but more specifically, the people of God, the nation of Israel. You see, this vision here in Revelation 12 actually points back to a vision that had happened many years prior. In Genesis chapter 37... Joseph has a dream, and in the dream, he dreams about the sun and the moon and 11 stars. And the interpretation of the dream is that the sun represents his father, Jacob, who is the father of the nation of Israel. 
and that the moon is his mother, and that the 11 stars are his 11 brothers. And so sun, moon, and 12 stars, those 12 brothers, became the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the people of God generally, and then specifically the nation of Israel, and notice how this woman, she's pregnant. Throughout the Old Testament, the, the, the people of Israel are described as being in birth pains, as experiencing contractions, except the tragedy as you, as you explore these themes in the book of Isaiah and the book of Micah is the people of Israel are continually suffering under labor pains, experiencing the excruciating pain of contractions, something I've never experienced. But... In the Old Testament, always in labor, always suffering, but there's no child. One of the prophets says, giving birth to the wind. And, and if you study the, the history of the people of Israel, always in trial, always struggling. But where is, the, where is the joy of actually bearing the child? Well, this woman is about to actually give birth. She's going to give birth to the Messiah, but there is someone who is trying to stop that, the dragon. He's described in verse 3. He's a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. A diadem is, a, is a, it's just a crown. A horns in apocalyptic literature are a sign of strength and power, and a crown is a sign of having the authority to rule and to lead. The person who has the crown on their head has the authority to rule and to lead. This dragon is a picture of the devil. Now, some of us don't believe in the devil. Some people think that uh, evil is just this impersonal force or it only dwells inside of us. Listen, the devil is real. And some of us, would, they might acknowledge that the devil is real, but kind of have this casual approach to the devil that, that he's, it, it, it's, it's not a big deal. Listen, right here in black and white, in Revelation chapter 12, the word of God says that the devil is wearing crowns. Don't underestimate the power of our enemy. Don't neglect to see the invisible battle, and to see that our enemy has significant power, ten horns, and significant authority. It's a limited authority, but it's significant. Seven is a symbol for fullness. All throughout the New Testament, the, Satan is described, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world. Ephesians 2.2, 2, the prince of the power of the air. John 14.30, the ruler of this world. Satan's wearing some crowns. He's a prince. He is a ruler. It's only of this world, but he wears the crown in this world, in this vision here. He has power. He has authority, and he's on a mission. His mission is to destroy this child to be born of this woman. Verse 4 is a picture of his power. It says his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. That's a pretty powerful tale to knock stars out of, the, out of the universe. Stars in fact, and remember from Revelation 1, Jesus in his hand held stars that were a symbol for angels. And so this, this star sweeping out of heaven, this may refer to Satan's original rebellion because Satan used to be an angel, and then a bunch of angels rallied around him and tried to rebel against God. 
And those stars, those angels became fallen angels that we call demons now. But this is his mission. It says that the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Think about the ruthlessness of Satan here. Is there, is there anyone more vulnerable than a pregnant woman in labor? What could she possibly do to defend herself? Is, 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 is there any more, a, a greater picture of weakness and neediness than an infant child? And we have an enemy who goes after the weak and the vulnerable, who seeks to strike in the invisible battle at those who cannot defend themselves. And think about how that looks. Think about the way that women are treated worldwide. Think about the way that newborn babies or children in the womb are treated worldwide. Think about who is behind that. you got to see the invisible battle that is raging. This is the kind of enemy that we are up against. Think about this picture. This hideous dragon in the waiting room of the maternity ward. Waiting to hear that tiny little cry from the mouth of a newborn baby so that he can storm into the birthing unit and devour the child. It's awful. But it's real. This is our enemy. We need to see the battle clearly. This idea of Satan trying to destroy the child, trying to destroy the the offspring of the woman. This story is as old as time. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned. Adam and Eve were the ones who were supposed to have the crowns. They were supposed to be the rulers of the earth. Genesis 1 says, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion. They were supposed to rule with God as their king. They were commissioned to rule the world. To be king and queen. But after they sinned, after Satan deceived them, the crown is now on Satan's head. But there was a prophecy made in Genesis chapter 3 that says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and and you shall bruise his heel. One day, that head of the dragon that has a crown on it was going to get crushed. And and the crown was was going to be, the, the ruling and the authority was going to give was going to be brought back to its intended recipients, to the people of God. And it was going to happen with the birth of a child. Satan knew from the beginning of time that from a woman, a child was going to be born that would crush his head. And he's petrified of that. And so he wants to preemptively strike. That's his, only, that's his only advantage. He just wants to, if I can devour the child while he's still a child, while he's still vulnerable, 
That, that's his only hope because he knows that his head is going to be crushed. And then we say that's, that's what's prophesied in Genesis chapter 3. And then what happens in Genesis chapter 4? Adam and Eve have two sons. Satan's afraid. Is one of these sons going to be the one who's going to crush my head? What am I going to do? Cain gets a little bit jealous of Abel. And then what is described in Genesis 4? It says that Satan is crouching at the door. Why? Because he wants to devour the offspring of the women. If I can get one of them to kill the other, I mean, the, the other one will be dead and the other one's a murderer. Certainly he can't be the one. And then you follow it all throughout the history of the people of God. Satan trying to devour the children of God's people. Pharaoh throwing baby boys into the Nile in Exodus chapter 1. Herod slaying the children in Bethlehem in Matthew chapter 2. He is trying to devour the child. But he fails. Verse 5 says, She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. She gives birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. This is a, a picture going back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 describes this great and mighty king. It says, the Lord said to me, this is what God said to this great king. He said, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This was a, a, a prophetic psalm pointing forward to this child of the woman who was not just going to be a son of the woman but was also going to be, notice, the son of God. It's the son of God who was going to rule over the nations with that rod of Iron. This is a picture of Jesus. Revelation 12 is a Christmas story. It's an odd Christmas story. There's no shepherds, there's no wise men, there's definitely not a little drummer boy. Just this hideous dragon waiting for Mary to give birth so that he could devour the male child. But it says, but he was, he was caught up to God to his throne. Now, it's, it's challenging to establish a chronology for the book of Revelation because sometimes things are spinning in circles, sort of in a, a cyclical way. Other times there's flashbacks and then fast forwards. I mean, Jesus' life is hardly even described here. I mean, it's his birth and then his ascension. There's no miracles. There's no Sermon on the Mount. There's, there's no cross. There's no tomb, there's no resurrection, just the ascension. The idea here is that Satan tried to capitalize on the opportunity, but it was like as soon as he came, he was already gone up on the throne. He failed. There's a number of times where Satan tried to, I already mentioned Herod, killing all the innocent children in Bethlehem. In Luke 4, back in Jesus' hometown, they tried to throw him off a cliff. A number of times in the Gospel of John, people attempt to stone Jesus but fail. He was always trying to destroy him. Even the temptation in the wilderness was an attempt to try to destroy Jesus. He just kept failing. And then Jesus 
having accomplished the purpose for which he came, to die as a substitute for our sin, ascended to the throne, to the presence of God. Verse 6 says, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. More about that a little bit later. But we need, loved ones, we need to see the invisible battle. We need to have a right amount of perspective when we think about conflict in our world that we see on the news, conflict in our relationships. We need to have the right amount of perspective in light of this broad-ranging conflict that has been going since the beginning of time. We've got to see the invisible battle. Now look at verse 7. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. You know, sometimes it's okay to cheer in church, and so I'm going I'm to back up a little bit and give you a chance to, to do that, okay? Verse 7, now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. <laughs> Hallelujah. He was defeated. And this is the second thing that we need to understand. I'm so glad you cheered because that leads right into the next point that we have to celebrate the eternal victory. We've got to see the battle. We've got to understand what's happening. But we also need to understand that we win and that we have an opportunity to celebrate. Every time the church gets together to worship, we are celebrating this eternal victory that has taken place. Now it's interesting that, so Satan fails on earth trying to destroy the child. Now he's stirring things up. He's trying, to, he's trying for a war up in heaven. It's very interesting that they send Michael, the archangel, to fight against Satan. Now, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists, they, they get confused on this point, and they try to make it so that Michael actually is Jesus. That, Jesus is not an angel. Jesus is the Son of God. And so um, that, that's just simply not true. That is clear error and is false. But just, just think about this. Satan comes to fight in heaven, to start a war in heaven, and they, they send an angel. I just, I just sort of picture like the triune God is there on the throne and an angelic messenger sort of comes along and, you know, excuse me, your majesty, I just wanted to let you know that, that uh, Satan, the dragon, has come and he started a, a war in heaven. And then you just picture the triune God there and, of course, Jesus is like, I'll go send me. And the Spirit's like, I'm always ready to help. And God the Father's like, you don't need to go. Just Send Michael or somebody. I mean, there wouldn't. Jesus, you're the Son of God. Yet we don't need to send you. That, that, that's not a fair fight. Satan's a, a fallen angel. Let's send an angel to fight against him. Let, let, let's at least make it so that he at least has, feels like he has a chance. But he has no chance. The archangel defeats the fallen angel. Notice how 
Satan, who was an angel, is described in verse 7, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Those stars that were swept out of heaven, the demons, are fallen angels. But he was defeated, and I love verse 8, there was no longer any place for them in heaven. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. And then verse 9 says that the great dragon was thrown down. The ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world, he was thrown down to the earth and all his angels were thrown down. Thrown down, thrown down, thrown down. Because Jesus is on his throne, Satan is thrown down. And again, we need, to, we need to make sure that when we are studying Revelation that we are aiming at seeing clearly. One of the troubles in trying to always establish a chronology or a timeline for the end times is that we miss the obvious truth that's right in front of us. You see, verse 9 is so theologically rich in helping us to understand who Satan is. There's all of these terms that are used to describe him. He's referred to as the great dragon. And that he's also called, in verse 9, the ancient serpent. If you ever were questioning whether or not the serpent in Genesis 3 actually was the devil, because he's not called the devil in, in the narrative of Genesis, well, here's your confirmation. He is that ancient serpent. He was there in the Garden of Eden. He's also called the, the devil and Satan, meaning the slanderer. And the adversary, that he is opposed to God, that he is opposed to the people. This is who our enemy is. All, those four names help us paint the picture of who Satan is. But then we're also told what he does. It says at the end of uh, verse 9 that he's the deceiver of the whole world. He's the deceiver. That's what he does. He's a liar. And then verse 10 says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of, our, of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. You notice he's described as the accuser. So we have his names that tell us who he is, but then we have these two words that tell us what he does. He's a deceiver. And he's an accuser. If you want to understand the dynamics of spiritual warfare, you need to understand the weapons that Satan is trying to use. If you are going to see the invisible battle, you need to see and understand what is Satan trying to do. Some people think that spiritual warfare is is saying certain things and binding this and building a hedge around that and pleading the blood over this or that. That is not spiritual warfare. That is not how Satan is fighting. We are never commanded to do those things. Those things happen. We see Jesus do some of those things. We see the apostles do those things. But when you actually get to New Testament commands about how we are supposed to engage against the enemy... We are warned, do not be deceived. We are told, be of sober mind. Prepare your mind for action, we're told. And what we need to understand is that Satan is trying to deceive us and trying to accuse us. And this is how I think about what Satan is trying to do. This is how these two things fit together. He digs this enormous, dangerous pit. 
It's like, it's like 20 feet deep. There's no hope of getting out of it. He, cover, he fills it with all filth and grime. And then he carefully and methodically covers it up to make it look like level ground. And then he starts acting like a deceiver. He says, right this way, please. And what Satan tries to do, and why we pray, lead us not into temptation, is Satan tries to tempt us. He tries to lead us to sin and tries to tell us there's no real bad consequences for this. There won't be any shame or guilt. You'll be, there's no, you won't ever get caught. Don't worry. And so he, he deceives us. He leads us into the pit. And then we fall in. And then we look up and there's no way to climb out. And then we're covered in all of this filth and we feel so horrible. And at that point, he stops being the deceiver. And now he starts being the accuser. And even though he was the one who was trying to lead you into that pit, then he looks down at you and says, what have you done? You just jumped right in there. That was a horrible decision you made. Look at you, you're covered in filth. You're never going to get out of here. Are you really a Christian? A Christian would never find themselves in a pit like that. So he moves from being the deceiver, and now he is the accuser. And so how do we fight against this? The way that we fight is the truth. What the book of Revelation tells us is the truth. It describes in verse 11, this is how we defeat our deceiver and our accuser. It says, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. We fight against Satan with the truth of Jesus and his blood and what he did for us. It is the truth that stops us from getting into the pit. It's the truth that says, I'm not listening to him. I'm not going there. I am on the path of righteousness. I am going to follow the truth of God's word. But in the sad cases when Christians fall into temptation and sin, and when Satan starts to hurl the accusations at us, we still fight with truth. We still conquer with the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And we say, yeah, you know what? I am covered in, in filth and but you know what? Jesus has come down to me in this pit. And Jesus went into a pit himself. He went into a tomb for me. He died as a substitute for my sin. And all of my filth and all of my guilt and all of my shame, Jesus bore those things on the cross. And I have overcome. And he's going to get me out of this pit because he loves me. That's spiritual warfare, loved ones. Not falling into a pit and in the sad case when we do, believing the truth of the gospel, that in Christ God has cast our sins behind his back, that they are as far as the east is from the west, that he has cast them into the depth of the sea and will remember them no more. This is how we conquer the blood of the lamb, and it goes on in verse 11, and the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. This is how we conquer because we know, we say with Paul, to die is gain. How do, you, how do you defeat an army that's not afraid to die, that's just totally willing to, to come at you and fight you with everything that they have because they know that if, they, if we die, we win. Satan cannot defeat us because even if he were to kill us, we still win because we don't love our lives. 
We love Jesus, the giver of life. We know that there is a death after this death, and we know that there's life after this life. And Jesus said, whoever loves his life or saves his life will lose it. But whoever gives his life will gain it. We can't lose. I love this whole idea of overcoming by the blood of the Lamb. I really believe that when Jesus suffered and died for us on the cross, when he took our, our place, when he stood as our substitute and bore all of our sin, that that, that was a decisive victory. Jesus said, really moments before he went to the cross, just a, before he was arrested, before he had the last supper with, with his disciples, this is what Jesus said in John 12, when he knew he was going to the cross, he said, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. If you look back with me at Revelation 8, it says, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. You know, if you study the Old Testament, you see that Satan, he had a place in heaven. Zechariah chapter 3, he's there, he's accusing the high priest. We're probably more familiar with the first couple of chapters of Job. When Satan is there, standing before God, accusing Job. He says to, he says to God, oh, the only reason Job believes, you, believes in you is because you made him rich. You take away all his wealth and all his family, then he'll just, he'll turn his, he's accusing Job. So God allows Satan to take away all of his wealth. Job still believes in God. And then Satan goes back. He's still accusing. He says, well, the reason why he believes in you is because you haven't touched his body. I mean, if we were to harm his health, then certainly he'd turn around and curse you. Satan is accusing, standing before God, accusing God's people. But there's no place for that anymore. Because Jesus has paid the penalty for all of our sin. And so there's no need for accusation anymore. So that Satan could try to have a place in heaven and look at my life and have me standing there and be like, do you, do you realize what Ted did? Are you seeing those thoughts that he's thinking? Did you see the way that he treated his children? Accusing, accusing, accusing. But Jesus then steps in place and says, yeah, but I died for that. I've covered that. I paid the price for that. That accusation can't stick because not only did I take his sin, but I've given, I've given him my righteousness. So there's no place. There's no place for the accuser in heaven anymore. This is what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8 verse 33, he asked the rhetorical question, who can bring a charge? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? And the answer is no one can. Because God has justified us. And then that says, in all these things we are more than conquerors. We conquer by the blood of the Lamb. We celebrate that victory. Verse 12 says, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. There's cause to celebrate, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Satan knows that his time is up. Underlined the word knows there. He understands it. He, doesn't, he knows he doesn't have a chance to win. All he's trying to do is make life as miserable for God's people here on earth in the meantime. 
He's punched his card in. He knows that he's going to have to punch out. He knows it's only a matter of time. And so we need to understand this, thirdly, that we have to stand firm in the final struggle. Knowing that there is a battle and knowing that we have the victory then gives us the ability to stand our ground and to stand firm when we come in the face of conflict. Verse 13 says, When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. And so Satan is... He's tried to destroy the child and failed. And then he's went up to heaven and fought this battle and he's thrown down. He failed. So now he's trying to turn his attention to the woman, to the, to the people of God. Now there's a lot of people who I love and respect who disagree on the interpretation here. And again, we're not trying to lay out a timeline. Some people think that the woman symbolizes the people of God, the church, all of us. Other people are more narrow and thinking that it refers to uh, Israel. But listen, we need to understand regardless of where we stand here on, as far as interpretation, what we're going to see is God's going to take care of this woman. Even though Satan is going to try to attack her, God is going to care for her. And whether or not you believe that this refers to the woman as a symbol for all of us, or whether you believe it's some sort of way that God's going to look after the nation of Israel in the future, the principle is the same. God looks after his people. And check out how he does it. Verse 14. So Satan's coming after the woman, but the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. That's the language of Exodus, right? Exodus 19, I brought you up on eagle's wings. And, and it says that she went, she went to the place where she is to be nourished for time, times, and half a time. That's very similar to verse 6. So God prepared a place for her to be nourished for 1,260 days. God has a place prepared. He knew that the attack was coming. And he has, a, he has a plan to care for his people when they are under attack. Not just to protect them, but to nourish them. And to care for them and strengthen them. This is the kind of God that we serve. Now what's the deal with this time, time, and half a time, and, and 1,260 days? A number of times throughout the Bible we see this number. 1,262 days, or 42 months, or three and a half years, or, or times, which refers to two years, Time, one year, and half a time, which is two plus one plus a half is three and a half. It all is this, this picture of three and a half years. Some people believe that this is a specific time period, the second half of the great tribulation. Other people believe that it's more symbolic. Here's the truth that we need to understand. Your struggle against Satan has an expiry date. There's a time limit. And it, it, that's something to cheer about for sure, Yeah. There is an expiry date on our struggles. And so take that and stand firm when you come up against it, knowing that it won't always be this way. And this whole idea of time, time, and half a time, this comes from the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 makes this prophecy. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. This is referring to a, this is a prediction about a very difficult time in Israel's history when this ruler of, of the Seleucid Empire named Antiochus IV Epiphanes, when he was going to siege Jerusalem and he was going to commit horrible atrocities, murdering the people and then doing 
awfully sacrilegious things in the, it was one of the worst times in the history of Israel. But God made a prophecy. It's only going to be for time, time, and half a time. It's only going to last for about three and a half years. And in that case, it literally came true. It was a very difficult time. But you can read about this in the, uh, in the apocryphal book, the book of Maccabees. And uh, eventually, God kicked Antiochus uh, to the curb. And eventually, the, 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 the order of worship and stability among the people of God was restored. This is where the, this is where the whole season of Hanukkah comes from uh, for the Jewish people the whole idea is there's a difficulty coming and even if it's as difficult as Daniel chapter 7 and the awful things that happened to the people of God during that time there is an expiry date that horrible time ended our horrible time will end as well so then so she sent to the wilderness, God protects her. Verse 15, the, certain, the serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went on to make war on the rest of her offspring. You can understand why Satan's getting furious here. He tries to devour the child and the child's taken up to heaven. He fails. He goes up to heaven, tries to win a battle, but he fights Michael, he loses. He fails. He tries to go after the woman, but she sprouts wings and flies away. He fails. He tries to have a flood, and then the earth opens up and swallows his flood. I mean, this is getting ridiculous. Satan is losing. He's losing. He's losing. He's losing. And what does that mean? It means we win. We win. We win. We win. That's what it means. This is why the reading of the book of Revelation at the beginning of the, of, of the book says it is a blessing to those who read it. Because it's a blessing to be reminded that we can celebrate the victory and we can stand firm when we face these struggles and these difficulties. He becomes furious with the woman and he wages war on the rest of her offspring and on those, notice this, this is us, those who keep the commandments of God. And hold to the testimony of Jesus. He's trying to deceive you. He's trying to accuse you. Keep his commands. That protects you from being deceived. And cling to the testimony of what Jesus has done for you. That protects you from being accused. And then it says. And it says. And he stood on the sand and the sea. And then that rolls into chapter 13. Where we see the, the beast from the sea. And the, the beast from the land. And, and a horrible horrible time in human history but that time will expire it's time time and half a time it's 1260 days it's 42 months it's going to be hard but God is going to win and that this is what we need to keep in mind we need to see that there's a battle going on but we need to understand that we win and so let's pray together our glorious, victorious God, we worship you and praise you for the way that you have orchestrated human history in such a way to bring maximum glory to yourself. And that you use trials and difficulty and suffering and conflict to purify and strengthen your church. And God, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, God, that you would give us strength to withstand the attacks of the devil. When he tries to deceive us, I pray that we would claim to your truth and follow your commands. When he strives to accuse us, Lord God, I pray that we would lean on the truth 
of what the gospel says about forgiveness and about grace and about being cleansed from guilt and from shame. Now God, I pray that you would do a good work in our church, Lord, that you would do a good work in us as individuals to apply and believe in and love these truths, God. Help us to see clearly. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.